You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined once again by Ian Atchison. Ian is a senior advisor to the Counter Extremism Project and a visiting professor at Staffordshire University's School of Law, Policing and Forensics. Ian is an Ulster man with a long involvement in prison security and counterterrorism. In 1994, he joined Her Majesty's Prison Service as a prison officer, rising rapidly to governor rank. Ian has extensive involvement in operational command of serious prison incidents, hostage negotiation and counterterrorism policy and practice relating to the threat posed by IRA terrorists and more recently the very different challenge posed by Islamist extremists in custody. Ian is the co-author of a discussion paper entitled Hiding in Plain Sight, Disguised Compliance by Terrorist Offenders, which was published recently as part of a collaboration between the Counter-Extremism Project and the European Policy Centre. The paper raises awareness of the danger posed by terrorist deception and provides recommendations on how this risk can and should be tackled. In today's podcast, we will discuss the findings of this paper and seek to understand more about the false disguise compliance of terrorist offenders. So Ian, thank you so much for coming back to join me on the podcast to discuss this paper. You've been following and discussing this issue of false disguise compliance for quite some time, mm. something that's not really widely understood. So maybe, well, first, you maybe just give me a sense of why you decided to pursue this topic and why you decided to, to write this discussion paper. Well, the issue of, of deception with um, ideologically motivated uh, offenders has um, you know, plagued us, uh, as it were, for years. And I first came across this phenomenon, as you've pointed out, Lucinda, when um, I did some work with IRA terrorists who were at that stage in a prison called the Mays Prison in, uh, in Northern Ireland. And I became aware of how important deception was and the element of true intent in relation to people who are very differently motivated than, than ordinary criminals. And of course, deception is, is as old as criminality, and I'm not suggesting it's the sole kind of remit of uh, terrorist offenders or violent extremists. But when you have people who are uh, you know, uniquely dangerous, in my view, also in the case of uh, Islamist extremists, for example, uh, feeling that they have uh, you know, divine permission to, to murder people, the, the uh, realization of their objectives uh, has relied to a great extent, both inside and outside prison, on on concealment of intentions, on the projection sometimes that they had abandoned their uh, ideology, which is still absolutely in place, in order to gain power, to gain trust, sometimes to gain early release, and then to be able to uh, launch attacks when uh, authorities, uh, sometimes misguided, often naive, were, were blindsided by people who they thought had successfully abandoned their their toxic beliefs. So, I mean, to maybe sort of define what exactly this is, I mean, is it that kind of deception of authority in order to be able to disguise or hide 
an ideology or a motivation? Yeah, I mean, cer- certainly uh, in, in relation to our current sort of cohort of, uh, of terrorist offenders, they, they have a vested interest, many of them, in, in disguising the fact that they haven't recanted that violent ideology that still motivates them to want to harm our citizens. So, you know, we, we should be extremely interested uh, in, in that sort of behaviour. And in my view, we aren't very good at uh, detecting it and we could be better. Of course, you know, um, human beings aren't brilliant lie detectors, even professionals who've been working in the, the field for many years. They are susceptible to, to being gamed by people who are uh, sometimes very sophisticated and psychologically manipulative. So I suppose you would describe it in a nutshell as that uh, sort of psychological manipulation by terrorist offenders to convince those who are responsible for our safety and their risk management that they are less of a risk than they are. The purpose of that being to be able to have the ability to carry out future attacks. So, I mean, I I think people would be interested to hear some concrete examples of where this has actually happened. Uh, I know you have been following or you followed the Osman Khan, uh, the inquest, which took place in London uh, in the recent past. That's perhaps one example. Are are there others? And maybe you could talk us through that a little bit. Well, well, I mean, if you just look at deception before we, we talk about disguised compliance, uh, but deception has been a feature of, of modern Al-Qaeda, IS generation terrorism right from the start, right from the kind of the signal event of 9-11, which revolved around Islamist terrorists deceiving a flight school into thinking they had you know, entirely innocent intentions to uh, attend flight training. But there are plenty of other examples you know, spooling forward uh, into the recent past of, of disguised compliance in particular. So you've just got to look at uh, you know, some fairly gruesome events from, from 2015, 2016 onwards. For example, uh, the uh, attack on two uh, prison staff, which almost resulted in them being murdered in a French prison in 2016 by an Islamist who'd convinced people that he had completely abandoned his uh, Islamist ideology. The awful attack where a priest was uh, beheaded in France in 2016 as well, where uh, the the assailant there had convinced authorities that he had completely abandoned violence. You've got the the attack, sadly, only last year by an assailant in Vienna, where the Minister of the Interior uh, admitted that the person that murdered uh, four uh, citizens in a rampage through the, the town, the Islamist terrorist, had completely fooled the authorities into believing again that, that he had abandoned violence. So, I mean, there are, there are lots of examples, I'm afraid to say, right the way through of terrorists employing deception in order to achieve their, their murderous goals. And of course, it takes us right up to uh, Khan and his attacks in uh, in 2019. And you know, when I when I think about Khan, I think about my interest in this. It's really chilling, I think, to to read. I mean, I, as you're aware, I was at the inquest into Usman Khan's victims and sat through uh, some very harrowing testimony that illustrated huge failures on the parts of the on the part of the uh, the authorities and the protective agencies to foresee uh, something that was 
as we were saying in, in the title of our discussion paper, Hiding in Plain Sight. So just to uh, spool it forward uh, to, to Usman Khan, the multi-agency protection group that was responsible for managing his risk that um, convened before he was released from prison. Uh, and I'm reading uh, you know, verbatim here from, from their assessment while Khan was still in prison uh, in early 2018, said that, and, and I'm quoting, he may be behaving in a deceptive compliance manner in order to facilitate his release. And this was a person also who this this multi-agency risk authority said was an influential senior terrorist offender, radicalizing others and seeking to uh, dictate the behavior of non-Muslims. Now, those would have been fairly large red flags, frankly, that that, uh, were, were being waved. And it remains almost incomprehensible, in my opinion, why that sort of behavior wasn't picked up and why Khan was allowed to also develop a narrative at the same time as this intelligence was being picked up. And there are hundreds and hundreds of pages of intelligence all through Khan's prison career that indicate he was a dedicated and um, unrepentant terrorist who wanted to continue uh, his, his violence. But he was also producing a, a quite uh, effective counter-narrative himself, where he was suggesting that he, he had been completely reformed, he'd abandoned violence and violent extremism, and he'd been transformed primarily by being part of the Learning Together uh, initiative in prison, where he was put, unfortunately and, and fatally, in contact with his, his future victims. Um- Ian, you've you've uh, illustrated, I think, very well with your range of examples. You know what a real and and live problem this is. I think most of those that you've referenced have been Islamist attacks. Mm. Are there examples of other cohorts of extremists or terrorists, for example, the far right, um, who use or deploy these same tools? Well, yes, absolutely. I, I think the, the, the concept of, uh, of deception, if you like, is one that all violent extremists are interested in because they all want to, for tactical reasons, disguise their true intentions until they activate whatever um, threat it is that they're sort of cooking up. So, for example, if you look only this year at the uh, Capitol insurrection prior to uh, the, the election of President Biden, it was quite clear from the evidence that the Proud Boys, for example, who are an extreme right-wing militia, had infiltrated some of the people who were going to the capital uh, in order to um, uh, you know, disguise their intentions until they, they arrived there. So yeah, it, it should be no surprise to us that these kinds of, of tactics are used across the ideological, political spectrum. And, uh, you know, w- w- one of the things that we know about um, uh, violent extremists is they, they learn of each other, they innovate. And there's no reason why the extreme right wing won't be looking at how deception operates for Islamist extremists. You look back in history to see how, for example, deception operated for loyalist and Republican paramilitaries, false flag operations, the use of the media to infiltrate and disguise intentions and undermine, you know, others and so on. All of that is is um, certainly present across the spectrum. So can you build a profile then of, yeah, I suppose, the, the kind of the character traits and the, the behavioral patterns of individuals who are falsely complying or who are you know, duping the system or gaming the system? 
That's a really interesting question. I don't think we have done enough research, frankly, in this area. And one of the things we're calling for in, in hiding in plain sight is much more research going into the um, characteristics of these offenders. I think in order to be adept at deception, if you're a terrorist offender, you need to be a you know, psychologically uh, quite a manipulative person. People who have charisma are often able to get away with pulling the wool over uh, other people's eyes. I mean, deception, of course, can also be used in terms of grooming. So drawing other people into violent extremism, it relies on people, as, as I say, who's very charismatic and persuasive and so on. I think on the other hand, People who want to be deceptive about their intentions and disguise the fact that they are still committed to a violent ideology, they also rely on, to a certain extent, the naivety of the people that are responsible for their risk management. And, you know, one of the things that I, I remember repeatedly from 2015 and looking into the threat caused by Islamist extremism was uh, members of my team interviewing former terrorists uh, outside prison who talked about one of the keystone risk management and intervention tools for uh, violent offenders called the healthy identity intervention. And these guys were sitting in a gym in the uh, the East End of London. They were telling my, my researchers and they were sort of chuckling about it, just how easy it was to game, as they would say it, this program, which was designed to try to assist them in transforming their their worldview from one that was toxic and unhealthy to something that was uh, you know uh, uh, more consistent with with our values and in their terms it was extremely easy to game it was extremely easy to appear to be compliant to be able to pass the test and in doing so of course that meant that the gaze was turned away from them and one of the big criticisms i have about the way that we manage terrorist offenders of whatever ideology in prison is we are far too passive about how we do it we are not assertive we don't get in the faces of people frankly who uh, represent a national security threat unless and until their behavior has drawn attention to the authorities. And that behavior sometimes needs to be very you know, egregious. It needs to be very out there. And of course, the ironic thing is that people who are adept at disguised compliance won't be those people. They will still be the controlling minds who are sitting back and letting others do their work for them within the custodial environment and enforce their ideologies and try to convert others to them. But they will be at one you know, removed from all of that, which is why we have to get first of all, much more sophisticated in the way that we challenge ideological offending. And secondly, we need to be much more assertive about how we deal with people who are on the basis of, of, of the evidence collected. Maybe not front and centre in terms of their, their behaviour, but certainly the, their directing minds behind others' activities in prisons around this violent extremism. I think that's really interesting. I, I mean, to me, it seems evident that there is a great degree of naivety in terms of how we approach this in our prison systems. Um, and that's a phenomenon that is certainly not unique to the UK. It, no. it's, it's across the board. And you're profiling in terms of, I mean, because we're all familiar with vulnerable or impressionable people who have been radicalized, yeah. but th that's not the profile of person that we're talking about here necessarily. It's, it's much more likely to be the, the recruiter or the, 
the kind of mastermind, I guess, behind um, mm. uh, extremist or terrorist activity. So <laughs> the million dollar question, I suppose, is, well, you know, from your research and your decades of, of practical experience working in the prison system, you know, what does work? What are the, the sort of effective measures that can be pursued mm. by authorities to, to mm. try to really tackle this phenomenon, which is mm. quite difficult to yeah. identify, as, yeah. you've, as you've set out? Yeah, I mean, you're quite right, Lucinda. And, and to be fair, this is a a, uh, a multilateral problem that goes uh, across lots of countries that have you know a, a terrorist phenomenon still and are, are actively at risk from terrorists. About how you pick up on people who are disguising their true intentions, but potentially to lethal effect when they are released or even even inside prisons. And I think we've got stuck looking at this sort of UK example in a, in a sort of containment compliance zone. Uh, and what I mean by that is that if you look at the experience in Northern Ireland, which is, you know, uh, interesting and to some extent, to a limited extent, useful because some of the comparisons aren't there at all. But if you look at policy around loyalist and Republican paramilitaries, terrorists who were uh, you know, caught and imprisoned, sometimes for very long periods of time, there was absolutely no effort at all made by the authorities to challenge the ideologies that had put them there. Now, that might have been a pragmatic decision that was made because there were hundreds of those offenders and perhaps because it wouldn't have made a jot of difference. But I think the fact remains that we still look at terrorists going into prison as bad guys going into a big concrete box and coming out again X number of months and years later. And then, you know, uh, we, we can deal with the issues. And what we've seen repeatedly, I'm afraid, by people who go on to commit terrorist acts who've had contact with the prison system, and those are extremists, people who've been imprisoned for terrorist offences, as well as those who've become radicalised in custody, is that there has been very little attempt made to actually confront that behaviour. And we can't, I think, any longer shy away from that. We have to have a prison system that mirrors the sort of values that we accept from people outside, and that doesn't simply say, go in there and be quiet. And if you're, you know, if your behavior is really, you know, uh, florid and, uh, you know, appalling, we'll, we'll try to do something about you. And that's probably just some sort of administrative control, uh, for example, being sent to the segregation unit or, or, or something like that. But we're not going to try to get to the root of your behavior. So, A, we don't really know if it is possible yet. And I'm talking about the, the, the pointy end of the spear here, the most dangerous offenders that we have, terrorist offenders in custody, we don't really know if it's possible to actually reverse or blunt that determination to kill because we haven't really built the interventions and skilled up the people to be able to get stuck in there to get a foot in the door ideologically and to challenge those beliefs. And I think that's going to be extremely important because what we're seeing now when that doesn't happen are people who are still mobilized to the most appalling acts of violence being released from prison or indeed, you know, we mustn't forget there are, you know, in the case of the the UK, there are British citizens inside the walls as well. There are prisoners and prison staff who are highly vulnerable and accessible targets to people who are in many other ways, incapacitated, so they can't continue their struggle outside. And for for their benefit, as well as for for society, we've got to get much better at spotting disguise compliance, spotting people, testing their integrity, at developing interventions 
that will will uh, be calibrated for that individual's pathology, if you like. And to be able to track that person all the way through custody and into the community. And one of the big criticisms I have, uh, and you know, the, the Usman Khan uh, inquest really crystallizes this, is the total inability of our existing multi-agency protective arrangements to be able to manage the risk of these very, you know, very unique people. That is really interesting. I know in the in the report you have looked at assessment tools and so on, and we will we'll come to that in a minute. One of the things that I suppose from a practical point of view, one can observe with the justice system is that you know often when terrorist offenders reoffend, it is when they have been released prior to uh, fulfilling their sentence. In other words, on early release or parole. I think England and Wales have enacted a law which prohibits the early release of terrorists. How do you assess that? Is it effective? Is mm. is that the wrong approach? Well, we won't know yet because that was emergency legislation, as you know, that was brought in in the wake of the Fishmongers Hall atrocity and, and Streatham. But one of the things I said at the time was that, um, you know, in, in terms of public confidence in a justice system, you can't have people being released automatically, you know, uh, halfway through their sentence. That, that's an outrageous uh, dereliction of duty by the state to uh, look after uh, its citizens. Mm. But if we only say you need this extra lump of time and n- none of the things I'm, I've been talking about with you happen during that time, I can't see how you are protecting uh, the safety of, of, of citizens. You have to fill that time with positive action to determine the true level of risk that is indicated by by prisoners who've been you know, imprisoned for a long time, as, as Can was, and to be able to manage that risk into the community and into reintegration. Now, I think one of the reasons one of the one of the difficulties we will have is that unless that's done properly you'll start to see the emergence of a i think a quite dangerous narrative that says well nothing works let's bang all of these people up forever and you know apart from some of the the moral issues about you know indefinite detention for all terrorist defenders, which is, you know, in in all sorts of ways, completely unacceptable. I I think we have to still struggle on with the notion, or certainly I still struggle on with the notion, that these people are a heterogeneous group. If you look at, you know, ideologically motivated defenders from Islamists to extreme right wing, one of the unfortunate things is that they've got very few characteristics that knit them together, very few common denominators. So it's quite hard then to create a generic program that will reduce their dangerousness. I, I now deliberately try to avoid as much as possible talking about radicalization and de-radicalization. It's much more about the individual, the individual's risk potential and how that individual's being managed. None of those things are happening, in my view, adequately at all at this time. Okay, so I think that's interesting in terms of a very kind of bespoke, targeted approach, which I guess makes sense when you look at the profile of of these very dangerous individuals. Uh, you know, obviously, different approaches are taken in different countries. Have you seen models in other EU member states, for example, or in other jurisdictions that that maybe are a bit more effective than than might be the case in in the UK as as you've seen it? 
Well, I think one of the things that we need to do better in, in the UK and that I've seen examples of in, in Europe, and Denmark is a good example there, um, is that when terrorist offenders are uh, released from custody in the UK, they, they still are, in effect, the sole property of the state's protective services. So the state has a monopoly on managing that risk. And that's a securitized approach, which is uh, important, but it's not sufficient in itself. There more needs to be done uh, in order, and I think working with with NGOs and so on is is a, the right thing to do, and others working with civil society in order to allow these offenders to to have a chance of of reintegration. I, I think I, I didn't fully answer your previous question. I think you were asking about recidivism rates as well, uh, Lucinda. Now, what, one of the uh, things that's emerged from some research recently, is, I think, is this idea that terrorist offenders are less likely and violent extremists are less likely to reoffend than they, compared with the, the uh, general population. I, I think from what I've seen, that's a, a rather dangerous route to complacency. First of all, some of the research that I've seen that suggests you're know, reoffending, proven reoffending by terrorists down to 5%. Well, of course, that relies on somebody being caught again and convicted again for a terrorist-related offence. And I, for one, certainly don't think our surveillance systems are anywhere near good enough to know exactly what has, be, you know, what has happened to people when they've left custody. Have they re-engaged? Have they desisted with terrorist ideologies? So it's a bit of a false comfort that one. It also, of course, compares people who have, you know, in in the, the cohort comparison, people who've stolen cars to people who've run amok on streets and tried to stab shoppers to death. And there's absolutely no comparison. And I think, think the other point to be made about scale here is also important uh, in relation to how we deal with disguise compliance. We've only got around 220, 230 terrorist offenders in custody. Add to that some people who've come through who are judged to have become radicalized. In other words, people who've, who've taken a non-terrorist criminal route through custody who are now emerging. You, you might add, I don't know, 70 or 80 to that total, but you're still talking about not even the population of one small jail. It's a very scalable threat, which has a very disproportionate impact on society. So I think we ought to be uh, spending the money, frankly, and spending the political capital to be able to deal much better with these people. So I think your point is really well made. This is actually, I mean, it's a disproportionately dangerous cohort of criminals, but it's a very tiny cohort. Indeed. And and so it should be possible to manage the risk. And, you know, different parts of your report, you know, I suppose examine different methods that are in place currently. Um, you yeah. know, for example, the kind of psychosocial interventions Mm. which are delivered. And you're quite quite critical of that approach. Maybe you could elaborate on that in terms of what's missing or what needs to be done and what the sort of specific process should sure. be. Sure. Just going back to the point I've made previously about generic interventions and the specificity of the pathology, if you like, of these individual offenders, the two things don't seem to fit. And if you look at the healthy identity intervention, which is the, the psychosocial intervention that I was I was talking about, it's often delivered by people, I'm not being pejorative in, in any sense here, but who are a moral universe away from the people that they are working with. 
that to me isn't a great fit from the start. Also, the some of the research that's been done into the validation of these programs, which has all been done in-house, incidentally, which is another issue. But it, it seems to think that compliance is a mark of success. And you know what I'm saying is compliance with a program has absolutely nothing at all to do with intent. It's just a very simplistic way of saying, oh, well, you obviously enjoyed that program. I think you got something out of it. Therefore, we must be making progress. I'm afraid to say with these particular offenders, you're going to need a much more robust and assertive and challenging series of interventions. And that brings me on to your, your central question. So, one of the things that I, I'm very interested in, we, we are our colleagues, Jesse Morton, for example, who's a, certainly an example of a, a violent extremist who has abandoned his ideology. So a, a good example to start with. But uh, Jesse worked with Mitch Silber, another one of our colleagues, a former head of intelligence from the NYPD who caught Jesse in developing a construct that explained how people became radicalized. Now, the point of this is that they spend a lot of time talking about the the pre-radicalization space. And I think if we're talking about interventions that work with individual offenders who are joined in fealty to a pretty crude ideology, uh, which basically says, as I've said, you've got divine permission to murder people. But if you look at those individual pathologies, you will then, I think, see, be able to identify the ways that you might be able to intervene to reduce dangerousness with them. So in other words, if you look at, for example, Richard Reed, the, the shoe bomber, and, and put him through this model that Silver and Moore invented, what you see with the evolution or the devolution of Richard Reed, the guy who tried to blow up a plane mid-Atlantic by having explosives in his, his shoes, is lots of failures within the family and lots of vulnerabilities because things things that happened at school and a failure to fit in. Now, of course, this doesn't excuse any of his behavior at all, but it explains how he became vulnerable. And it explains the pathology that then put him on a kind of trajectory with some of the preachers in um, a mosque in Brixton that then started to radicalize him. So if you go back to that stage, you might be able to identify some unresolved needs that can then be tailored into an intervention, so some sort of family therapy response and so on. And I know this seems very far away from the ignition point where you have a person that you know had a very unhappy family life trying to blow himself up and loads of innocent people on a plane. But I do think one of the problems that we're missing from our risk management of terrorist offenders is, is that rich biographical detail. And again, this is part of the, the problem with the kind of mindset of they've been convicted, they've been sentenced, they're going to serve 40 years or whatever it is. Now they're inside this big concrete box so we can forget about them. I think that's not where the work ends in combating violent extremism. That's where it begins, where you then get people, professionals, not at the end of the sentence, but at its beginning, engaging intensively with people to try to understand the conditions that got them set into violent extremism. I think in that way, we can do two things. First of all, we can figure out if it is possible and then be able to measure to the extent it's possible to make these people you know, less dangerous. And secondly, as I've consistently said, and you know my experience in the Mays prison with IRA prisoners in the in the mid nineties, you know, confirms this. You can't talk to dead terrorists. You can only talk to the ones that are left alive, obviously. But we're not talking to them 
in the right way. We're not communicating with them enough. We're not challenging that ideology. We're not being creative or inventive about how we do things. So therefore, we're not learning. So therefore, we're not stopping the next people who are at the back of the conveyor belt coming through. So therefore, we have potentially more more atrocities, unfortunately, in the pipeline. I mean, do you believe that currently the skill sets exist within the prison system, the justice system? Are they, I mean, are they there untapped or are they new skill sets that need to be cultivated and and developed Mm. within or brought in from external sources? Mm. I think our problem is that we rely on a a back-end multi-agency public protection set of arrangements, a mishmash of organizations at the moment that are organizationally and philosophically opposed to each other, who are supposed to gather around the uh, offender and prevent further offending, manage that risk, successfully reintegrate them. And this is just broken. It doesn't work. And again, the Usman Khan inquests, the jury said there were serious demic failures in that system to manage offenders. What I conceive of in terms of a solution to that is that you completely abandon this uh, multi-agency shotgun marriage that happens at the end of, of an offender's journey through custody, and you replace that with an assertive executive management team that is multidisciplinary. And you know there is a big distinction to, for me between multi-agency and multidisciplinary. Multidisciplinary means you get the best talent from those agencies, and the talent does exist. But you put that into one unit with an identity and the agency to be able to manage all aspects of that terrorist offender, literally from when the judge sentences that offender to the last day of their community supervision. You have a single team working with that offender downloading that biographical knowledge, that deep understanding of the person's pathology that I've, I've mentioned in the past, being able to then tailor interventions, being able to, to some extent, take some risks and see what works and what doesn't, being in charge of that offender's journey towards, hopefully, either desistance. In other words, a bad guy went in and a less bad guy came out, and the difference being that that less bad guy doesn't want to blow up buildings and people anymore, or of of course, the the much harder to achieve, but still possible in my view, holy grail, that is disengagement. That, you know, and we've seen it. We we have colleagues that we work with who have been violent extremists from across the political spectrum, from, you know, far right to uh, Islamist extremists who have genuinely and authentically recanted their their ideology. And those people, of course, are the most useful in the fight against violent extremism. They're worth any number of you know, security staff and, uh, and so on, because they are the, the greatest threat to the people who are trying to you know, shovel simplistic, hateful messages at vulnerable people to try to explain why their life's awful and therefore get them onto the the conveyor belt of violent extremism. So we need much more of those people created, and we can only create those people if we have systems, processes, and professionals in place who are going to be able to generate them in the end. I think that's a a, a neat summary, um, if you like, of the the conclusions and the the recommendations from Mm -hmm. your your very timely report. And it all makes such eminent sense. Of course, uh, multidisciplinary with the best experts in their field working together in a collaborative way is wholly logical and and potentially, we hope, can actually really mitigate the risk to society. Can I just interrupt? I I could give you quite a good example of what's happening now that I think is wrong and what could happen. Mm -hmm. 
So, for for example, in the in the multi-agency public protection arrangements, the parole board will make decisions on on who gets released, what terrorist defenders gets released, and some loopholes have been fixed in order for that to happen. So they're they're not within the actual formal MAPA structure, but they're part of it all, the risk management structure. And I had a conversation with the chief executive of the parole board, just an online conversation, where I was saying, I don't think you're suitable to manage the risk or to determine the risk of terrorist defenders. And he came back to me and said, but Ian, you don't understand. We've got tired judges who try terrorist cases you know, sitting on this panel. And I said, so what? I said, you know, judges of a particular skill set, you're right at the back end of a process relying on other people's reports, and they're often quite sketchy reports, mm-hmm. on, on behavior over a long period of time. What I'd much rather have in my multidisciplinary alternative to the, the current arrangements is the prison officer who spent five or six years unlocking this individual every day and who had the most intense understanding of the motivations and the behavior and the characteristics of this offender of anybody, but who is routinely and certainly was left out of in relation to Usman Khan, any, any involvement in managing that risk. And that's a crazy situation. I mean, it, I think it's really indefensible. Mm-hmm. I know there are lots of vested interests that, you know, unfortunately, within this world of counterterrorism have created new bureaucracies mm. that, that I think make the pipework even more complicated, new sort of joint uh, executive units, so on. I think what government should be doing is sweeping away all of that and saying, mm-hmm. actually, you weren't created for the purpose of managing terrorist offenders and you have demonstrably shown that you can't do it. Now, the people who would defend MAPA, for example, w- would probably use Usman Khan to defend it in two ways. They would, first of all, say hindsight's a wonderful thing and it wasn't possible to f- foresee, foresee what was going to happen. And I think that's bunkum, frankly. I mean, you just have to look at the hundreds and hundreds of devastating pages of the, the inquest transcript that I've been you know, through with a fine-tooth comb to see people who've just failed to see what was in plain sight, not something that couldn't have been found until uh, later. Uh, And the second argument that you get that I have a bit more sympathy with, I suppose, is, you know, well, you you know, it's impossible to to stop every person like Usman Khan or others slipping through the net. And, you know, I don't think that's the right way of looking at things. I think it's probably true, but it kind of then excuses a sort of complacency. These events, you know, people who've, who've disguised their intentions coming out of prison and, and murdering our citizens in the streets, they should be never events. They should be utter exceptions. And the state needs to be doing everything it possibly can in order to prevent them. I mean, you know, we're both from Ireland. We've been exposed to that appalling aphorism, the acceptable level of violence in relation to terrorism in Northern Ireland. And we don't ever want to get there again where you know, governments are saying, well, you know, we've been told this is all we can do. So we're just going to have to tolerate more dead shoppers in, in streets or more kids blown to pieces by nail bombs inside nightclubs. I think that is morally and politically completely unsustainable. And the answer to this is not terribly sophisticated and is within grasp. And the answer to this is sweeping away this, this entire you know, sclerotic pipework of risk management that has been retrofitted time and again to try to catch up with very unique and often very sophisticated offenders. Sweep all that away and replace the pipework by what I've described, one single executive multidisciplinary agency 
that manages all of these people all the way through custody. I, I profoundly believe that's the right way forward. And that's the way when you skill people up and you have the right multidisciplinary team and they're operating in the right ways, that's the way that you can, I think, greatly reduce the instances of mm-hmm. false compliance that have you know, um, plagued us and, and resulted in dead, dead bodies and streets mm-hmm. across Europe. I think I think that's a good summary. And, you know, we've seen, I suppose, the activity of extremist and terrorist groups, as well as the individual activity of individual perpetrators evolve and become far more sophisticated. And arguably our systems simply haven't caught up. So I think you've I think you've illustrated very well what needs to happen and how it can happen. I suppose my final question is before we draw to a close, you know, what sort of appetite do you think is there amongst policymakers and decision makers at government level to introduce that kind of sweeping change, which, as we said, I mean, it, it's targeting a very small number of people. It really shouldn't yeah. be so difficult. Is there an appetite to do it? Are they listening? And and you know, are you optimistic about the potential for some meaningful change in how we're handling this situation? I'll probably get into trouble here because I have you know quite a lot of contact with politicians who are responsible for the public response to, to this. And I think there is a difference between politicians and operational policy people. I, I think politicians get it, but they rely almost entirely for information from people who have a vested interest in maintaining the, the architecture that exists at the moment. And, you know, I, I want to just underline the fact there are, you know, nobody is trying to make it easier for terrorists in this country or, or in that's involved in, in, in you know, public services. Everybody has the same objective to try to reduce you know, the, the instances of people who disguise their intentions, then get out of prison and uh, murder people. But we've, we've got a, a really urgent problem. After Fishmonger's Hole, for example, in, in what is supposed to be one of the most secure prisons in Western Europe, HMP Whitemoor, about six months after the atrocity, or six weeks, in fact, after the atrocity there, uh, two prisoners, uh, one uh, a jihadist, the other who'd been converted were able to dress in fake suicide belts, fashion improvised weapons, and violently attack and try to murder a member of prison staff. But their their original intention was, uh, I am absolutely sure, to take him hostage to kill him. So I try to say this to politicians who are being fed, you know, the the, um, hindsight is is a wonderful thing, defence, and also we are so much better than, than we have been. You know, we're not talking 20 years ago. We're only talking a, a couple of years ago when uh, somebody like Usman Khan was able to completely deceive all the multi-agency architecture to go on and commit an atrocity. So I'm deeply sceptical, first of all, about that uh, charge that you know, everything is much better. And you know, I, I have said in, uh, you, you, know, you know me, in typically Anglo-Saxon terms to government ministers, that they are very close to following a box with a flag on it in relation to attacks inside a prison in the morning and resigning in the afternoon mm-hmm. because they are reliant on information and they're reliant on a culture and a, a paucity of leadership within the criminal justice system, which is inadequate to the task of dealing with our present cohort of terrorist offenders. That was exposed completely by the Usman Khan inquest. And incidentally, if it hadn't been for the tragedy of two young people being murdered by this guy, we probably never would have understood in such stark detail how inadequate the arrangements are. 
And it's, you know, I'm afraid the preference of people who work within this, uh, you know, the senior people, that, you know, that doesn't get exposed. There is likely to be, I, I think, a further inquest into a, a prisoner called, or an ex-prisoner called Kerry Sadala. And Sadala was the uh, person who devolved into violent extremism, again, in plain sight, having been released from prison where he associated with Islamist extremists. Uh, and he murdered um, three people in a grotesque way in a, in a park in Reading, you know, just last year. Um, and that inquest, I think, is again going to reveal serial failures and inadequacy of the current risk management system. Somebody who was clearly descending into violent extremism that nobody, it seems, could, could, um, could stop. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that'll be another opportunity to try to make the case again to politicians to say the public deserve better than this. Mm -hmm. They deserve better than people saying, you know, it's just such a weary epithet, isn't it? It's such a weary epitaph. You know, oh, we've learned the lessons we're going to do better. How much longer do we have to hear that? This system is bust and it's time to fix it. Well, look, I mean, I think think not only will, you know, the the appalling outcomes and revelations that are, are coming from these inquests, not only will they have an impact on policymakers, but hopefully also your really timely and important piece of research in conjunction with the European Policy Centre, Amanda Paul, our colleague over there in Brussels. I think this is an important tool as well to highlight not just the glaring evidence that the system is bust, as you've just said, but also it will potentially demonstrate to policymakers that there are solutions and that a, a change in approach yep. can actually reap real benefits and improve the system and most importantly, keep our citizens safe. So well done, Ian, on, on the work that you've done on this and shining a light on this issue of false disguise compliance. Thank you for talking through it with me today on our podcast. And uh, no doubt we will be back here again talking about this some more in the months and years ahead. But uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.